Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Monday. Uh, thank you for joining me. Man, do we have an awesome show uh, planned for you today. Uh, Steve Kim's uh, going to join us. I have an awesome fire starter that will be your uh, daily dose of Dion. And I'm going to give you an explanation of what transpired uh, between Royce White and myself and uh, why we had to uh, regretfully discharge uh, Royce from the uh, Fearless Army. Uh, I'll do that after the fire starter. Uh, you don't want to miss that. Uh, before I get to the fire starter, I want to tell you guys about my great friends, uh, hopefully our great friends at Patriot Mobile. For 10 years, Patriot Mobile has been America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. And when I say only, trust me, they're the only one. Uh, the whole team over at Patriot Mobile have been great supporters of this show, which is why I am proud to partner with them. Patriot Mobile offers dependable nationwide coverage, giving you the ability to access all three major networks, which means you get the same coverage you've been accustomed to without funding the left. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're sending the message that you support free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, Second Amendment, and our military veterans and first responders. Their 100% U.S.-based customer service team makes switching easy. Keep your phone. Keep your number, too. Just go to PatriotMobile.com Jason or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation today with the offer code Jason. Ask about their coverage guarantee while you're there. Get the same dependable service and take a stand for your values. Make the switch today, patreonmobile.com slash Jason, or call 972-PATRIOT. Guys, you know I've done this myself. I have a Patriot mobile phone. It's been awesome. It's been great for me. I feel good about where I'm spending my money. These are the types of steps we have to make if we want to make a difference, an impact in this culture war uh, we've got going on. All right, so uh, let me get to uh, my fire starter and you, uh, Dion, uh, groupies. Uh, could, could we get, let me bend over here and get something for these Dion groupies. Ugh. I didn't have this plan, but uh, I brought some in some tissues because there's gonna be a lot of tears uh, for you Dion groupies today. Uh, so I will, uh, be more than happy uh, to give you a tissue after this fire starter or during this fire starter. Hey, this fire starter is so good that I want you to immediately, particularly if you're listening over Apple, give me that five star review. Give me that five star rating. Write a review in Apple. Start pounding the like buttons, the subscribe button, the notifications if you're watching over uh, YouTube uh, and get your tissue and popcorn ready for this fire starter. All right. Now that I've done that, let's let's. Let's get the flames going. Uh, the coaching experiment the University of Colorado is conducting with Hall of Fame football player Deion Sanders will likely end with a lawsuit. Someone, 
a player, an assistant coach, the athletic director, a fan, a cheerleader, someone is going to sue Sanders for coaching malpractice. Maybe it'll be Woody Page, some sports writer in Denver. The complainant will use Saturday's Colorado UCLA game as exhibit A in the lawsuit. Dion's post-game press conference will serve as the closing argument. Following the Buffalo's 28-16 loss, Coach Prime unleashed a level of self-serving narcissism, ego, and incompetence that is uncommon outside of Pop Warner. Sanders' frustration was justified. It's nearly impossible to lose a football game, let alone by double digits, when you win the turnover battle 4-0, which Colorado did. The Bruins' turnovers all came in the first half. Despite this, they led 7-6 at halftime. Colorado squandered a game its opponents tried to gift wrap. When it was over, Dion attacked his offensive line, questioning their killer instinct, want, desire, will, and athleticism. After allowing his quarterback son, Shadur, to suffer seven sacks and a dozen other hits. Sanders sounded like a peewee football coach. Listen for yourself. Um, the hardest thing to acquire is linemen. So when people have a good one, you rarely see linemen jump and, and go to different schools. I think we have some, some guys that uh, it's gonna be good with a little seasoning, but overall, um, we just don't have the, the fight or the passion to, to do what we wanna do. Right? I'm a little biased because I'm his father, but I think we have the best quarterback in the country. Um, I don't think any other quarterback could put up with or stand and deliver like I always do, week in and week out, and, and, and taking the beating that he's taking. And we gotta address that. Uh, so let's be clear here. That is not coach talk. That's how fans talk. That's how little league coaches talk. That's how daddies talk. At the collegiate level, Offensive linemen are developed. They're rarely acquired. This isn't the NFL. Many of them are not top flight high school players. They're tall kids who are too heavy to play basketball or they're defensive linemen lacking the athleticism to play on the defensive side of the ball at the power five level. Dion doesn't understand this because he spent his entire football career playing on an island at cornerback. In his previous coaching stints, he always had more talent than his competition. The details have never really mattered to Deion Sanders as a player or a coach. Talent trumped everything. He still believes that. That's why he's perfectly comfortable with four games left in the season, publicly announcing he wants to replace his offensive linemen with new players. The dude said, the big picture is, you get new linemen. That's the picture. I'm going to paint it perfectly. Dion is playing fantasy transfer portal football. The sports fans who love fantasy and video game football think Dion is right. The jock sniffing ex jocks who talk about football on social media and on ESPN and Fox Sports think Dion is right. Coaches they're laughing at Dion. 
They can see what any objective, informed football person can see. Dion's approach creates a toxic culture that will undermine the intangibles that lead to consistent winning. Six weeks ago, after Oregon bumped Colorado, I tweeted out that the locker room dynamics within Dion's program would get very interesting. Let me uh, read from my tweet from six weeks ago. The Colorado locker room is about to get real over the next few weeks. You have a weak offensive line protecting the coach's kid at quarterback. The coach and the QB have large, unchecked egos. The media has already started the process of singling out the offensive line. No one questioning scheme or all-pass showcase Shadur for Heisman NFL approach. Media will ignore, but the locker room dynamics will be very interesting in Boulder. Did anyone listen to that game on Saturday? Did you listen to Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler crucify that offensive line? I like Kirk, I like Kirk Herbstreet. I don't have a problem with uh, Chris Fowler. But I was embarrassed by their call of that game. I was embarrassed that, that, that they took that kind of a dump on Colorado's offensive line. Kids, you, you don't hear, the way that line was talked about, at one point Kirk Herbstreet said, I don't think they have one guy on the offensive line who can play at the level, uh, at a power five level or at the level Dion wants or whatever. I mean, here's my, I don't have a problem with college athletes, particularly now in this name, image, and likeness era, getting criticized. But the strategic malpractice for everyone to ignore what Colorado was doing strategically that put this offensive line, put the quarterback in jeopardy, never discussed. Colorado can't run the football because Dion has never invested in the team's running game. Dion sits out, stands on that sideline, and loves to see the ball in his son's hand. He's a dad coaching a peewee team. Colorado's refusal to run the ball is the primary reason Shadur is the most sacked quarterback in college football. The offensive line talent isn't great, I will admit that. The all-pass strategy, though, is a big part of the reason the offensive line looks weak. Let's listen to Dion. Well, it's a struggle to run the ball. It's a struggle to run the ball. And uh, we, we got to figure, figure that out because now you're, you're one-dimensional and it's easy to stop a team when they're one-dimensional and that's who we are at this point in time. Could, to follow up on that, could being able to commit to that, as you've talked about, one Commit to what? Running ball. Could, could that help? Yeah, I, I think we committed to it on, on the first down and we were second and 15. Right. Those are the type of things you don't want to do and get behind the eight ball. First downs are so vital. So that's a dad watching the game and reliving the game in his mind. That's not how coaches think. That's not how coaches see the game. You, did, you, did you see Chip Kelly during the entire game writing notes to himself? You, you, a lot of coaches do that. To stay in touch with what's really going on. They take mental notes and write them down. Chip Kelly did that throughout the game. Dion sits there with his golden headset on with the thing flipped up 
looking around, hey, does some kid need help getting his gold chain on? Who can I go pat on the butt and, and clap and blah, blah, blah. Dion's not into the game in a real way. He doesn't know what's happening out there. I'm going to lay out for you the facts of what happened to Colorado and their running game, particularly at the beginning of the game. Here's the facts. Colorado opened the game with a 13-play drive that led to a successful 31-yard field goal. They ran the ball one time. On second down, Dylan Edwards rushed for three yards. Every other play was a designed pass for Shadour. The drive stalled at the UCLA 13 when Shadour threw three straight incompletions. Colorado's second drive after a UCLA interception was seven plays and ended with a successful 39-yard field goal. The Buffs ran the ball one time. Dylan Edwards rushed for nine yards. The drive stalled on three straight Shadour pass attempts, one short completion and two incompletions. Colorado's third drive consisted of five plays and a punt. One of those five plays was a Shadour scramble for seven yards. The other four plays were Shadour passing attempts. On Colorado's fourth drive, the Buffs opened with an Anthony Hankerson running play that resulted in a loss of five yards. That single play justified Dion abandoning the running game. At halftime of a one-point game, it was seven to six, Colorado running backs Dylan Edwards and Anthony Hankerson carried the ball a combined seven times. That's what happened, factually, Dion. You had one play on your fourth drive where you opened with a running play and lost yards. That's it. The strategy, the all-pass strategy with that offensive line, it's ridiculous. It's childlike. It's the kind of offensive scheme only a father would cook up for his quarterback son. Everything Colorado is doing is based on Dion getting his son in the Heisman race and drafted in the first round of the NFL. What's sad is the motivation isn't about empowering or uplifting Shadour Sanders. The motivation is pleasuring Dion's ego. Shadour is a tool to serve Dion. Why do I say that? I say it because with six minutes left in the game, the Buffaloes trailed 28 to nine and Sanders left his hobbled son in the game. Shadour limped around the field most of the second half. After the game, Dion admitted that doctors injected Shadour with a painkiller at halftime. Don't take my word, listen to Dion. Your quarterback is taking his beating now. He got an injection at halftime, probably shouldn't tell you that, but you know I'm 100. And just to block some of the pain, so I'm gonna give him the next few days off so he could at least be mobile because I know once that block is off, he's going to feel it. The game was over. Dion left his hobbled son on the field for two meaningless drives. You know what that is? 
It's stat padding. It's a foolish Heisman push. Listen to Dion. I don't know who else, you know, that they have in these hires and Heisman balloting or running that takes the abuse that he takes and get back up. I don't know if any of these guys could stand and deliver every week like he does with the same um, uh, stress, the same stress that he delivers from. So I'm proud of it, not just as a father, but as a coach, I'm proud of uh, his strides and what he's doing and what he's seeing. This is coaching malpractice. This is coaching malpractice. Anyone that knows anything about football can recognize it. Anybody that's not interested in putting their lips on Dion's rear end can recognize it. It's malpractice. In this era of safety first football, there's no other coach who can get away with treating a college quarterback the way Dion is treating his own son. Could you imagine if, if a white coach left a black quarterback out on the field clearly injured, game is over, out of reach, and left him out? What would Ryan Clark and all the other uh, race controllers, the race bait narrative control, what would they be saying about that white coach? But because it's Dion doing it to his son, no one says a word. The worship of Dion justifies and allows Dion to abuse his own son in pursuit of some false narrative that Dion is a great coach. Dion Sanders is not a great coach. He's a character Fox Sports and ESPN are using to draw television ratings. He's a golden calf for people who need something to worship, who want to worship something other than God. He is their golden calf. He is all the racial idolaters that just need, oh, I gotta have this black hero and it's Dion, he's got gold chains and sunglasses and he invites rappers to the game and he's just so good, the kids relate to him. Oh, I just love Dion. He's your golden calf. He's someone you worship, someone you won't analyzed honestly. This is not a great coach. No great coach would subject their quarterback to the type of on-field abuse Dion, uh, Shadur is enduring. No great coach would utilize an all-pass offense against a team with UCLA's pass rushers. No great head coach would escort his quarterback and star defensive player to an NBA game, Nuggets Lakers, during a week of game preparation. No great coach would be happy with a star quarterback who refuses to shake hands with his opponents after a game. That was Shadur. You certainly wouldn't call that kid the leader of your team. The coach prime experiment is a disaster. Dion better lawyer up this type of coaching malpractice should be illegal. That's my fire starter. And I love that fire starter. And I know that the Dion worshipers and groupies out there in the audience, uh, 
Ticket TV, let me hand you a tissue because I know you're in the chat just crying right now. Oh, I can't believe Jason's criticizing Deion Sanders. He's 4-4. Four four. Don't you know they only won one game last year? It's a miracle. They've won four games. I've told y'all time and time again, Deion's not coaching last year's team. He ran those guys all off the team. They ran a stat on Saturday. There's one guy from last year's team who's playing. Dion ran them all out. He brought in 86 new players, including 50 some odd players through the transfer portal. All this, oh God, it's a miracle. He's look at he's coaching a team that only won one game. He's not coaching that team. It's completely Different roster. And this different roster should be two and six. This different roster has really only outplayed one opponent. That's every other game they've virtually been outplayed in. It's the most penalized team in the country. And I'm sure that's racism. I'm sure all the refs are going out there and just, oh, we got to penalize Deion's team. We're racist. You know why I say that? Shiloh, Deion's other son, who's a pretty good player. I'm going to give it to him. So it should do a pretty good player. I'm going to give it to him. But Shiloh executed a classic helmet to chin hit and got tossed from uh, Saturday's game. And everybody's whining and crying. And, and I saw Dez Bryant tweeted out, uh, they tossed Shiloh out of the game, but they didn't toss that Henry Blackburn from Colorado State. Hmm, interesting. That's racism. The Henry Blackburn's the kid that hit Travis Hunter in the Colorado State game. Uh that he got flagged for, but he didn't get tossed out of the game is is my memory. But you get tossed out of the game for targeting, helmet to chin, leading with the crown of your helmet. Henry Blackburn didn't do that. He did a late hit. Shiloh, and again, I don't like the targeting rule. I think it's overused. I like the old school football. But the rules stipulate if you leave with the crown of your helmet and it hits this chin and neck area, you get tossed in the game. This isn't an example of the reps picking on Shiloh. This goes on every weekend during college football season. White kids, black kids, I've seen them all get tossed over that hit. I don't like it, but it is the rules. There's a bunch of these rules I don't like. I don't like how much they call pass interference, illegal contact, all that other stuff. But it's part of the game, and you have to accept it. That's the way the game's played now. But to sit here and act like the oh the Reds are picking on Colorado, they wanted to throw Deion's son out the game. We, we, we just sound like idiots. Quit the worship of Dion. He's unworthy. There's none of us walking this planet who are worthy of this type of worship. 
I get that he's four and four. But this is not a great coach. He he I didn't even play the clip. <clears throat> he threw the offensive coordinator under the bus. I'm a, I'm I think I can read that to you. Threw the offensive coordinator under the bus. It's it, it's it's everybody's fault but Dion's. I this if anybody ever tells an accurate story about what's going on at Colorado this year with the players and the assistant coaches, it would be an amazing story. Because there's a handful, half dozen players that are like, yeah, I'm cool with Dion. And then there's the rest of that team that says, wow, this whole thing is about Dion. Then it's about Shador. Then it's about Travis Hunter. And then it's about Shiloh. And everybody else can go to hell. But this is really about Dion. Here's what he said. Someone asked him about Sean Lewis, their offensive coordinator. Here's Dion's answer. You can't put me on the spot like that. I think the coaches are doing a pretty good job. Thank you. That was a great try, valiant effort. You got to understand, I sat in your seat for like 17, 18 years, so I got to know when it's coming. Someone asked you about someone on your team, a coach that you hired, and all you can say is, you can't put me on the spot like that. That, that, that's what you're saying is, yeah, he's doing a terrible job, but I can't answer that question. I'll get in trouble. He just did that to his offensive coordinator as if his offensive coordinator hasn't been given specific instructions by daddy dearest. You throw that football and showcase my son because that's what this is about. We don't want to run a balanced offense. We don't want to do the things necessary to allow this offensive line to grow and develop. That's why you run the football. All season. You don't abandon it, but you run it all season. And I think, according to our stats, I believe in this five-game stretch where they've gone one and four, the running backs have averaged 4.2 yards per carry. That's more than respectable. That justifies the running backs running the ball in a college football game 25 to 30 times per game. And when you're in a dogfight and you've won the turnover battle 4-0 in the first half, that probably justifies running the ball 35 times over the course of the game. And I don't care if you're only averaging three yards per carry. When the other team has pass rushers like UCLA, you can't telegraph, you can't let the opposing defensive coordinator and the uh, guys on that defensive line know, oh, 90% of the time, this is going to be a pass play. You're putting your offensive line in a bad spot. You're putting your quarterback in a bad, a bad spot. This is unbelievable coaching malpractice. This is embarrassing. And the fact that no one will call it out, that people that have played the game and people that 
have an understanding of the game. I mean, many of these athletes don't. I mean, they don't have a full understanding. Guys that played out on the islands, wide receivers, corners, a lot of times defensive linemen, they don't have any idea. That Warren Sapp is going to be mad at me for saying that. Warren's different, but they don't have any idea. Running backs a lot of times have no clue what's going on. But people that play safety, middle linebacker, center, quarterback, offensive line, they understand the big picture. That, hey man, even if we're only picking up two yards, it's important for us to run this football, to back these defensive linemen off, that they have to think, because again, you have gap responsibilities that are really important in a running game. Defensive linemen do. You have to stay in your gaps when you're facing a running game. When you're facing a passing team who doesn't have a super mobile quarterback, gaps become far less important. If, if you're facing a quarterback and it's Lamar Jackson, yeah, you better stay in these rush lanes, make sure you keep contained, make sure you stay in your gap. That's all important. But when you're facing Shadur, who looks like he runs a 4.85, he's a little bit mobile, but he ain't going to kill you in the running game. You can get him. Now, gap responsibility is less important than just getting into the backfield and just disrupting the quarterback as fast as possible. That's all that matters. And how you get there doesn't really matter. You inch over into somebody else's gap. If you cross the center's face or cross the guard's face when you're not supposed to, but doesn't matter because that guy just wants to throw the football. He's not looking to hurt you with his leg. There's no running game coming. There's nothing. And so I'm looking at people on social media and people that allegedly know something about the game. Oh, they should have run screens. Oh, they should have did this. They should have tried this pass. They got to blah, blah. You got to run the football. You got to get your offensive linemen into the game by letting them be, letting them be physical with the other team. You have to establish a running game so you can run some play action pass. I, I, <laughs> I'll never forget. I, the best defensive player uh, in the Mid-American Conference during my time was a guy named Joel Smingy. I've talked about him before. Six foot six, tremendous pass rusher but could be handled very easily in the run game. And he put a clown suit on me in the passing game. And, and the only shot we had was we'd run these plays 22, 22 and 23. It was some kind of play action pass. We faked the running game right at him and then drop back to pass. And then we had a chance because I could get my hands on him and I could, once I could get my hands on him, I could manhandle him because I was just much stronger than Joel Smingy. But when we just dropped back to pass, it was curtains. It was over. And so I'm looking at Dion. They never established the run. They never went to a play action passing game because they never established the run. Shadour just does the same thing over and over again because Dion showcasing him for the NFL and trying to pad his stats. 
Take Dion off the pedestal. This is coaching malpractice that will end in disaster. Dion's going to be pointing fingers at Colorado. Colorado's going to be pointing fingers at him. Those kids in that locker room are miserable. They know that their head coach is favoring a handful of guys, particularly his son. What head coach takes his son and star defensive player to an NBA game during a week of prep? Who does that? It's crazy. So they can be seen and talked about and sit in courtside. Look how cool we are. Do you understand? You should have been taking one of those offensive linemen or two of them to the game and building them up and begging them to care about your son because, trust me, right now in that locker room, those offensive linemen could care less, couldn't care less what happens to Shador Sanders. They're not going to go to war for him. They're not going to go to war for Dion. They know Dion is out looking to replace them. Dion just blamed them for everything and took no responsibility for what he's doing. And the whole media is rigged up so that everybody's afraid to say anything about Dion. Do, do we have the. I got to be careful here because I'm one out. But do we have the. I, there's a Ryan Clark clip of him uh, trashing Brady Quinn about criticism of Deshaun Watson. Do, do we have that clip? Yes, we do. L let's play the clip of Ryan Clark, and hopefully it's not that long, but less than two minutes, hopefully. But play the clip of Ryan Clark trashing uh, Brady Quinn for the mildest of mild criticisms of Deshaun Watson. I do believe the difficult part for Brady here is that race does come into play because it's going to seem as a white man who is analyzing football is questioning the work ethic mm -hmm. of a black player, right? Which we all can't do because we can't put ourselves in Deshaun's place. But I think to take it to the massage thing and make a joke, I think when, when Brady Quinn makes a joke about the massage situation and accusations, it's disrespectful on many levels. It's one, it's disrespectful to the women who are involved in that situation. Yeah. If they have been through what you're suggesting they've been through, because to make that joke, it seems as if you're criticizing Deshaun or putting him in that place of being wrong. So if he is wrong, then there's someone who had to be wronged <laughs> Stop in that it, situation. Stop it. Stop it. So I, now, I've heard enough. I've heard enough. This, <laughs> you're, you're blaming Deshaun Watson. 30 women have accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. How dare you blame Deshaun Watson for anything? Because, Brady, you're white. And again, Brady Quinn cracked a small Twitter joke about uh, Deshaun Watson. I mean, it was nothing. Brady Quinn and, and LeVar Arrington were talking about Deshaun Watson, and Brady Quinn made a point about, like, he, or, or maybe it was LeVar that brought it up about, you know, is he a trust fund kid now that he has that $230 million guaranteed contract and he seems to be refusing to play or pretending to be hurt or whatever it is, and it's like, where's his motivation? And, oh, because he's black, 
you can't, Chris, you can't question or criticize Deshaun Watson. So if we have that going on with Deshaun Watson, a guy that 30 women, 30 women accused of sexually inappropriate behavior, a guy that hasn't played football at a high level or virtually any football for three years, if the standard is, hey, uh, you can't, he's untouchable, you can't criticize him, or we're going to smear you as racist. How do you think analysts feel about criticizing Dion? If the stakes are that high as it relates to Deshaun Watson, why do we think no one wants to touch Deion Sanders? Deion Sanders is putting on a coaching malpractice clinic and no one's allowed to talk about it, criticize him or correct him because he's black and he exists in this special bubble that the black people in media have decided he's untouchable. This is inappropriate for anybody. We, we all have to be criticized. We all have, and we can't say, oh, you can't criticize this guy, or you're racist. It's a joke. We're crippling, guys. And that's why I talk about Deion Sanders, because he's an example of how we're crippling, lowering standards for all black men. These lowered standards that the left has set up, and these black uh, puppets that they've installed is designed to cripple black men so that we're not fit for leadership, so that we walk into every situation with an excuse. <sighs> That's my fire starter. Uh, tissues for all the uh, Dion groupies in the chat and in the comments. Uh, go cry someplace else. Uh, I wanna tell you guys about uh, Samaritan Ministries. Tired of someone else telling you where to go when you have a medical need? Are you ready to take control of your health care? Samaritan Ministries could be the solution you're looking for. They connect hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation who come together through prayer, encouragement, and financial support when a medical need arises. It's not insurance, and you're not limited by restrictive networks. Say you have a medical need. You don't have to check and see what hospital is in your network or be concerned about the doctor being in network too. No, you go to the hospital, you choose, and don't give a second thought as to what's in network and what's not because with Samaritan Ministries, you're in control of your health care. Afterwards, fellow members pray for you and send money directly to you to help you pay your medical bills. And when they have a medical need, you'll do the same for them. That's what biblical health care sharing looks like. Check it out today at SamaritanMinistries.org slash fearless. All right, so... <clears throat> If you're listening over Apple, you know what to do. Hit that five-star rating. Leave a review of the show. If you're watching over YouTube, hit the subscriptions, hit the likes, hit the notifications. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to give you an explanation uh, on why Royce White uh, had to be discharged uh, from the Fearless Army. Next. It's my obligation on hate discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom Jason Whitlock, previously on Fearless 
This is why, hats off to Dana White. Because, you know, you, you, many of you all can sit around and color code how you see the world. I make choices based on values. This man having the courage as a commissioner of a league and with all the corporate pressure for him not to bow to the transgender, the alphabet mafia. Never going to back me up off of Dana White. I, I, Bud Light is going to exist. They're going to spend money with some company. Why not celebrate the fact they're spending it with the UFC? And, and, and look, I prefer boxing. But, but I get what the UFC is selling. I get what Dana White is selling. He knows that masculinity is under such attack and there's such a shortage of masculinity. He's going to give you, he's going to sell you masculinity in its rawest form. Mixed martial arts, that whole slap league he's got going on or whatever. He's just selling you right, toxic masculinity. And I would rather have toxic masculinity than no masculinity. Hats off to Dana White. All friends of mine that are uh, being critical of Dana White, rethink your position. How do we want these things to end? Shouldn't people, Bud Light hopped on board briefly with this transgender thing, and now they are uh, backing away from that. They're repenting, and they just gave Dana White uh, reparations. Why shouldn't we celebrate that? All right, welcome back. Uh, not pleased to announce this, but Royce White, uh, who's been a contributor on this show for past year and a half, I would say at least, uh, we've had to, I've had to sever uh, my relationship with Royce. Uh, Royce has recorded uh, two podcasts back to back, talking about me throwing out a boatload of lies, and it's a brilliant tactic uh, that radicals are often taught. Throw out as many lies as possible, put out as much content as possible, and then engage the person that you're attacking and try to make them defend or explain all the lies you just told. It's a great way to bait someone into a prolonged, drawn out, uh, debate, discussion, controversy. I, I, I cannot sit here and take the time to walk you through all the lies that Royce told. But if Royce's lips were moving, he was more than likely lying. It's the kind of tactic that is, again, deployed often by the left, often by people who voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, often by people who uh, led Black Lives Matters protest in support of George Floyd. Those type people are often recruited by powerful leftists trained in these type tactics, given an ideology, and then set up as plants to operate and move in, up in places where people aren't suspecting them to be operating and moving. That's what this smells like to me that uh, Royce went from Biden, Kamala voter, 
Black Lives Matters protester to, hey, I'm leading the charge for MAGA and Jason Whitlock and <laughs> Mark Levin are upset with me and that's why I'm off the show. So I'm just gonna walk you through just a couple of the lies and then <clears throat> I'm gonna be done with it. So here's Royce uh, on his own show uh, suggesting that, this is his first show I believe on Friday, suggesting that the things he's about to say will end his relationship with Fearless. Play the clip. And my frustration is that Jason um, is currently working for a company that is half owned by one of these neocon rhinos, Mark Levin. And this may be my, this may be the day that I never get to go back on fearless with Jason Whitlock and Jason has to make that choice for himself and, and it's his show and he gets to decide to do whatever he wants. I'm still going to love and support him no matter what, no matter, no matter what happens. I love and support Jason Whitlock. And so that's Royce, I believe, on Friday, and then on Saturday or Sunday. Now, again, he opens up his Friday press conference or uh, show saying that, <clears throat> I don't know if I'll ever go back on Fearless again. And then he turns around on Sunday and says this. Props, I thought I was giving him credit. I thought I was giving him a compliment. I didn't think that he would, I didn't, in the, I, in, it, it never crossed my mind. It actually never crossed my mind, really, that he would be upset with it. I mean, you know, anytime you go to talk about somebody else and they're not there, like I'm doing now, you, you run the risk of them being upset with, with something that you said. But it, it never really crossed my mind that this, it, it would be a relationship-ending uh, uh, sort of situation. So on Friday, it's, hey, this may be the last time I'm on Fearless, but on Sunday, it never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind. So I, I wanna make one thing perfectly clear to anybody watching this, any of the other contributors watching this, if I have private communication with you about anything, I have no expectations of you turning around and using that private communication to do a two hour discussion about me. Royce has spent a lot of time this weekend talking about, you know, it's unmasculine for Jason to eliminate me from the show, to block me on Twitter, to block my cell phone and all that. Hey, man, when someone violates my trust in that manner and, and, and my private communications are now content for controversy and promoting their podcast or whatever it is to promote some fight between yourself and Mark Levin. That's a deal breaker for me. It makes me go, hey, what is this person's real agenda? Our private conversations are content for a show, a podcast. When, when I would have been perfectly willing, as I've demonstrated in the past, oh, Royce, there's something you want to discuss on your show? I'll come on and talk about it. I'll come on and disagree. I've had him on this show when he's disagreed with me about how much I talk about Deion Sanders. I think I've been on Royce's show three times. I might be the only black person that's been on Royce's show and he's had 120 shows. And I've told Royce all, many times, more than willing to come on your show, anytime. 
I use my platform to help other people elevate their platforms. That's what I do. So if Royce wanted to have this discussion, he could have called me and I would have had it with him, but instead he does this without asking me and then turns it into, and this is where the okie doke and the, what are Royce, the three card money, the, uh, what, whatever Royce's catchphrase are, this is because this has nothing to do really with me. Royce seems to want to pick a fight with Mark Levin. And that has been troublesome for me because I don't have anything to do with the fight between Royce and Mark Levin. I don't. Royce, and again, these are, I, I don't know if these are lies or if he just doesn't know, but Royce keeps saying that Mark Levin owns the blaze and contacted me or put pressure on me to do something to Royce. Mark Levin does not own any part of the blaze. Mark Levin and I have had three conversations in my lifetime. Twice, I appeared on Mark Levin's uh, television program on Fox News as a guest. And once, I've appeared on Mark Levin's radio show as a guest. That's the only time I've ever talked to Mark Levin. That's it. He doesn't own any part of the blaze. He has nothing to do with my equation as it relates to the blaze. So, <clears throat> I'm going to show you, because Royce is talked about uh, what happened three weeks ago on this show. Royce and I were talking about Matt Gates, and Royce injected Mark Levin into the conversation. Let's play the clip. I mean, let's just go right down the middle. I love I loved that we're, we're gonna talk about Carl Rove now. We're gonna talk about Mark Levin. These people are absolute Rhinos. Every time they look at look, look at how look at how silly Mark Levin is. I mean, this man is touted as uh, having served the American people in a great way. Royce, you I put mean, me in a tough spot, but go ahead, go ahead, okay, go ahead. Okay. You put me. Well, well, go ahead. well, Mark Levin. Mark Levin wants to come out on, on, in public and say and say uh, that that Matt Gates voted with the Democrats. Matt Gates didn't vote with the Democrats. Matt Gates brought the motion to vacate. They voted with him. Oh. These are the people who've always been in on, in on it. Carl Rove, asshole. Mark Levin, always been an asshole. Hey, wait, hey, hey, hey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me point you. I don't know if you saw Brian Kilmeade on Fox News going after Tim Burchett from right here in Tennessee and, you know, making a fool of himself. Uh, again, I have a lot of respect for Mark Levin and, and, you know, he's been a friend to me, his colleague here at The Blaze. And so we have, these guys have a right to disagree and, and have their point of view. What's necessary. Your boy Mark Levin is not Tom Hagen, he's Tessio. <laughs> and there's a bunch of Tessios. And they're all showing their face. <laughs> Come on. Don't, 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 don't laugh. I'm, I'm being serious. Brian I mean, Kilmeade is Tessio. Go ahead, Royce. Brian Kilmeade. Kill, Brian Kill, no, Brian Kilmeade <laughs> right, yes. is, is uh, Don Barzini. 
No, actually, Rupert Murdoch <laughs> is Don Barzini. Uh, 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 your boy uh, Levin is Tessio. Uh, your boy, your boy, kill me. He's Carlo. Hey, Royce, Royce. He's Carlo. Let that be your last Mark Levin reference. We we under we heard you the first ten times. Now, now it's, conti- it's, be as truthful as you want to be, but please. I'm just trying to tell you the God's honest truth. These people who you. have come out, who have this is not this is not a casual thing. So, you guys watch this show. We don't call people assholes just for no reason and from out of nowhere. You guys watch this show know that I'm not deep off into the weeds on this political stuff. And we like to lean into Royce, who seems obsessed with politics, and and let him give us his MAGA take on politics. When he started talking about Mark Levin... I was like, well, hold on. This is a colleague of mine. Ain't, you can't talk that way about Ali Best Stuckey. You can't talk that way about the Robertsons. You can't talk that way about Steve Dace. You can't talk that way about anybody, Chad Prather, anybody, Lauren Chen, anybody associated with the Blaze. If that's some smoke you want to have with Mark Levin, do it on your own show. And so Royce, and again, these are lies or a, a conspiratorial, confused mind thinks that Mark Levin knows who he is, knows that that transpired, and knows that Mark Levin somehow got me to remove that from the show. This show is taped. Within 15 minutes, 30 minutes after we wrapped up taping, I told my team, hey, uh, remove that stuff about Mark Levin, doesn't fit the show. I don't I don't know what Royce was doing. It, it, you know, dragging me into something that I really don't want to have anything to do with. I'm not going to let someone just trash a colleague for no reason. And so I just want to be crystal clear. All decisions as it relates to this show are made by me. There's only one person in three years of doing this show who has tried to forcefully tell me what to do on this show. One person, Royce White. No one else. Royce has spent four hours on a podcast, quit talking about football, uh, we're at the brink of World War III, blah, 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 all of that. Royce White's the only person. Royce White has been on of, we had, I did the count since football season. He's been on seven shows of the last 47 shows we've done on this show. And I sent him some feedback on Tuesday or Wednesday about, hey, Royce, uh, when you're unpacking these big ideas, do them in this order. Start small, blah, blah, because you're losing the audience. This has been a consistent conversation Royce and I have had in private about, hey, you got all these big ideas. We're talking about blacks and Jews, and he wants to give this whole historical lesson on Israel and Palestine at the top. That's his response to my question about blacks and American Jews, or American blacks and Jews. And he goes into this history. I'm like, hey man, save that to the end. Start at the beginning, blah, blah, blah. This is what triggered Royce. I give people, contributors on this show, feedback all the time. 
None of them get triggered. None of them have uh, taped four hours worth of podcast because I told them, hey, that's not the way I, I think things should be unpacked on this show. So Royce is frustrated <clears throat> that, you know, he's not appearing on this show very much during football season. He doesn't like, I'm assuming, I'm speculating, but like Warren Sapp, Brett Favre and all this, don't talk Dion, all that. He's the only person. And so I, I want to be clear about one thing about who actually helps me put this show together. It's TJ Moe, David Reed, John Hadley, Justin Kraut, and Shamika Michelle. Every morning at 7 a.m., they get up and get on a conference call with me and help me talk through what we're going to talk about on this show. Most of the time, 90% of the time, I have it all figured out. But these guys help me. That's it. These guys have all been hired by me. They all work for me. That's who helps me put this show together. Don't get it confused that the contributors are waking up and helping me decide what's going to be on the show. I decide that along with the people that are in the trenches with me, working with me every day. Then there's a group on Wednesday that pray with me every Wednesday at 5.30. That's about 20 people. Some of them are sprinkled around the country. Those are the people in the trenches with me on a daily basis who help me decide, hey, did you think about talking about this or what's going on with the show? And then they pray with me every Wednesday at 5.30. Anthony Walker leads that. Sometimes Virgil participates, but Tiffany and Shamika and TJ Moe are there. My brother's there. Some guys that you wouldn't recognize their name if I called them out. They're just part of the Fearless Army. Those are the people in the trenches with me. Royce has been a contributor. Sometimes a valuable one, sometimes a confusing one. I probably talk to Royce once every two weeks on the phone. And again, we ha I had him look up. How often has Royce been on the show since football season? Seven times out of 47 shows. We're cutting bait with Royce. I'm cutting bait with Royce. Because I don't have time to figure out this Mickey Mouse stuff that he's got going on and why he wants to try to declare war on Mark Levin and the Blaze and paint all this other stuff. Last thing I just want to acknowledge here, because again, part of this, I'm getting crazy emails from people. You should leave the Blaze. And blah, I got some dude with one of the most anti-Semitic uh, emails I've ever seen, that a Jew is telling you what to do on your show and the, the Jews have screwed up the crew and Blah, blah, blah. Crazy stuff provoked by Royce. There's, I work with Tyler Carden and Gaston Mooney, the CEO and president of The Blaze. These guys have lived up to every word that they have promised me. Every single word. And I'm going to live up to every single word that I've given to them. My word matters. And I'm not going to let some confused, depressed, anxiety-ridden person 
bait some trap for me to get crossways with people that have done nothing to me but live up to their word. They, I never hear from them or I never hear from them about what I'm doing on this show. I had to call Tyler, the CEO today, and tell him he didn't even know what had gone on with Royce. One person has tried to dictate what goes on on this show, and it's Royce. Godspeed, Royce. Steve Kim next. Jason Whitlock, previously on Fearless. Who's struggling the most? Young black men. Nothing directed at them. One of these woke companies wants to hop on board and show me something. Do something to support heterosexual young Christian black men. I'll settle for just heterosexual black men. Do something to support them. Any man, any heterosexual man, a program just for heterosexual men would love to see it. I will accept that apology and forgive all your past sins. According to a recent study of hundreds of post-abortive women, 60% of women reported that they would have preferred to give birth if they had received more support from others or had more financial security. And that's where preborn steps in and steps up. Preborn is there for women in their darkest hour, deciding between life and death of their precious child. You see, the reality is women are being pressured to make this fatal decision and are being told that their babies are just a clump of cells. Preborn welcomes women with God's love and introduces them to the beautiful life growing inside of them, which doubles their baby's chance at life. When you support preborn, you not only support women, you empower them. Your donation of $28 will help a woman to make a choice that she won't have to regret for the rest of her life and gives her the ultimate blessing, life. Your love can save a life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 keyword baby or visit preborn.com fearless. That's preborn.com fearless. Steve Kim, next. All right, Steve. Uh, boy, I'm glad, Steve. You remember, Steve, when I had to uh, call you and tell you to watch the NBA basketball and you threw a tantrum and, uh, you know, I'm, were, were you thinking about uh, recording a two-hour podcast blasting me, Steve? Uh, hey, don't, don't answer that. Don't uh -oh. answer that. Don't answer that. Uh, answer my question about my belief that the Deion Sanders coaching experiment will end in disaster. Uh, I thought his post-game press conference was worse than his in-game coaching performance, and that's saying a lot. You know, I, I think at times you've been very, very harsh on Deion. I think here I'm right with you. There comes a point in time you got to coach the guys that you have. Um, yeah, you're going to bring in more Louie, but there, there comes a point where you have to say, okay, this is what we have. These are the guys in the program, and we have to coach them up. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of the old school coaches have. 
A lot of coaches take over new programs. And look, it takes about three years, four years to kind of get everyone in that is quote unquote your guy. But this is where a lot of coaches are in a tough spot because when they're asked about Dion, if they say anything, they're going to have the Dion jock sniffer mob come after them. There's going to be accusations of racism and all that other stuff. But Jason, if I am one of those offensive linemen, um, I, I would be like, what is this guy saying? Look, we're trying our best. I, I, I get it. Uh, we're not all pros. We're not John Hanna. We're not Orlando Pace. There comes a point in time where the coach just has to give the coach cliche. Now, look, some of the stuff Dion says I actually find refreshing. It's just not captain cliche. It's not all these banalities. But when you are a leader, to me, when you lose, you have to be willing to pull the thumb. Okay, and when you win, you got to spread the credit out. To me, that's leadership. And and Dion, the stuff he said, and the way he kept trotting out his son, who every quarter looked worse and worse physically. I mean, I'm watching this game, and, and I see Shadour on the bench. He looked like Joe Frazier uh, before the 15th <laughs> round in the Thriller of Manila. The only difference is Eddie Futch had the good had the vision to say, "Hey, son." They're not going to forget what you did. I'm not letting you go out there. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this game's out of reach. It's a three-possession game. Either just hand the ball off or just bring in the backup. And when I see Shadour limping out there, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. If that was any other coach who subjected a young college athlete to that, what would the coverage be at that point? And – Basically, all the coverage or all the whining has been about, man, they tossed Shiloh out of the game. That's racist. They would. And, and I don't like the targeting rule and the way it's applied. But that call on Shiloh, that happens every Saturday. Every single Saturday for the last five years, I've seen that call. Yeah, that, that call to me was bang, bang. I, there's certain angles where I'm like, you know, he led with the shoulder. Other ones, it kind of looked like the crown of the helmet, but... Here's the issue. Nowadays in football, if you hit above the chest, you are playing with fire. It's, it's a bit of Russian roulette with your eligibility for that game. But, you know, going back to Shador, he was playing. I, I thought it was, at times I'm just like, Shador, just chuck the ball. You're trying to complete every pass. That's not the way the game is played. And he's getting just beat up. I mean, he's getting hit like a pinata at a birthday party in East L.A. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Dion, uh, I know it's your son. I know you want to rack up the numbers. There comes a point in time you've got to protect your quarterback, whether that's your kin or not. It was a very strange game in a sense that, Jason, that should have been a four-touchdown blowout by the first half. You take away even half those turnovers, UCLA runs away with this game. And I said this beforehand. This is the best UCLA front seven that I've seen in about 25, 30 years since the days of Donnie Edwards and Jameer Miller. They have legitimate NFL guys like Latu and the Murphy twins. And you knew that was going to be a physical mismatch up front. And guess what? Sean Lewis and the rest of that offensive staff, they didn't seem to understand we're going to get overrun here unless we at least try to establish the running game at a certain point. So... Do you think Sean Lewis doesn't know that? Or, or do you think Dion is telling him, pad my son's stats? Um, it's the chicken or the egg. 
Do you accept? Uh, we can't run the ball because we don't, or we don't run the ball because we can't. I looked up the stats, Jason. This is amazing. The leading rusher for Colorado in terms of yards was Alton McCaskill. He had two rushes for 14 yards, and I think one of those runs came very late in garbage time. So that's even an inflated stat. And I don't think a single running back had more than four carries. So, again, I know what type of style they're running. It's an up-tempo spread that was much more about the pass, the short pass game, or any pass game, than it is about running the ball inside. But if you ever talk to any offensive lineman, and you could probably tell it better than I can, they will tell you that if they are never given an opportunity to come off the ball and hit people in the ribs and run block, if all you're doing is setting back to pass protect, especially against guys like Latu, you are asking to get butchered. I don't think Dion knows anything about the development of offensive linemen. Uh, I, I, and, and unfortunately, I do. I was forced to play that position, and that was the only position I could play. And so, again, there's a, you got to run the ball all season to establish a toughness within your team because at some point you're going to need to run the ball, and they certainly needed to, and you certainly need the, play, the threat of play-action pass to slow down that, that rushing attack, uh, the, the pass rush. He, he hasn't done any of that, and this whole belief that it's going to be solved with the transfer portal, I don't buy it. Offensive linemen are developed. Uh, I think your boy Jimmy Johnson used to recruit defensive linemen and convert them to offensive linemen. It, it, it's, there's a – anyway, Dion doesn't get you, – you, you, I've seen guys – I played against a guy in high school named John Berman. Never really touched the field for Carmel High School, but he was six foot eight. And he ended up having a cup of coffee in the NFL, a starter at Illinois, because he was six foot eight. And, and they took him. He didn't play much in high school, was unusable in high school. They took him and developed him at Illinois, and he made it all the way to the NFL. Dion doesn't get that, doesn't understand it. And let me move on from Dion and move into your real area, well, college football is your area of expertise, your second area of expertise, boxing. Mm. And there was an interesting Tyson Fury, what's it, Frank Nagano, isn't he the UFC heavyweight champion? And he he looked pretty good against Tyson Fury, knocked him down, I believe, in the fourth round. And and in my, you know, if they had given the fight to Frank, I wouldn't have, or Francis Nagano, I, I wouldn't have complained. Uh, but Fury retains his belt. Your thoughts? Well, yeah. So on Saturday, I'm at my friend's uh, house. It wasn't football palooza at Coach JB's. It was Hugo, my old high school classmate. We had the three TVs set up. So uh, to the left was the Miami-Virginia game and then Florida-Georgia. And then he had the fight on on the right-hand side. And it's really interesting. The first two rounds, there's really nothing going on. And I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And then in the third round, he gets clipped, Tyson Fury, and he goes down, and it was shocking. It really was. And I, I'll come clean with the Mia Culpa. I thought this was going to be a mismatch. I thought Fury was going to dominate him, and it never happened. And the indictment on Tyson Fury is I thought for large stretches, it was Fury that was actually much more nervous and skittish in that ring as a natural boxer than a guy that has never 
had a real boxing match. Now, again, he is a mixed martial artist. He was the UFC heavyweight champion before he fell out with that organization. But we are talking about someone who didn't even have an amateur boxing career. So this is not even analogous to Pete Rattermaker fighting for the heavyweight title against Floyd Patterson way back when. And as the rounds are going on, I kept thinking there's going to come a certain point where Nganu is going to tire out, he's going to fatigue, and guess what? It never happened. Then I expected Fury's going to get a little bit serious here. He'll start to layer his punches, work off the jab, and eventually there's going to be a big right hand, and he's going to assert his dominance. Guess what? That didn't happen either. And look, to come clean, my focus was on three different screens, okay? I didn't exactly watch this with a fine-tooth comb, and I'm not so sure who really won, but I did say, and I tweeted it, this feels like a loss for Tyson Fury. Just the whole feel of the event in terms of expectations and the way it played out. My column today for Snack.com, K9's Corner, I said Fury uh, loses in winning. That's what it felt like. But again, with Tyson Fury, I think that people have to realize one thing. He's the beneficiary of a very bad heavyweight era. I mean, I actually blanch when people say, not only is he among the greatest heavyweights of all time, he might be the best ever. And I'm thinking to myself, are you people out of your mind? Uh, let's just put it this way. Ernie Shavers ain't walking through that door. Ron Lyle ain't walking through that door. Joe Frazier ain't walking through that door. If you actually really study Tyson Fury's career, and his title run the last six, seven years, it's very, very flimsy. Well, it's highlighted by victories over Deontay Wilder. And okay. this to me feels like this to me feels like Deontay Wilder 2.0. He I actually think he wins in losing in terms of perception wise, because now he gets to have a rematch with Nagano and, and then he'll put on a real performance and probably cash in and make even more money, no? Well, keep this in mind. Coming into this fight, there had been an agreement where Alexander Usyk, who actually holds the other three belts, while Fury is the WBC titleist, they were going to meet for the undisputed title on December 23rd. But immediately after that fight, Fury and his people were saying, well, we've had such a long camp, and it's been arduous, and you know he needs a rest. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, that was actually a hard-working, well-trained Tyson Fury. You, you could have fooled me. But it, this goes to show you again about modern-day boxers. Even guys at the top level, as accomplished as Fury is, this was his first fight this year. And, and I have a phrase when it comes to combatants in that particular sport. Either you sharpen the blade or it gets dulled. There is no in-between activity matters. And Jason, you know how much different this sport is and why I, it's a hard for me. And again, I am not only the Korean Cosell, I am now the Korean curmudgeon and I couldn't be prouder of it. I'm never changing. Okay. Hey, get off my lawn. But anyway, so in 1975, Muhammad Ali went through a fight called the Thrilla in Manila. It was only the most grueling, physically taxing, vicious, violent heavyweight fight of all time where he won by 14th round TKO. Joe Frazier, as I mentioned earlier, was not allowed to come off his stool. That fight forever altered both men. They actually should have both retired. 
1976, Muhammad Ali was involved in one of these circus fights against Antonio Inoki, the famous Japanese grappler. And that thing was a farce because nobody knew the rules, and Inoki was kind of like on his fours like a crab, and he kept kicking at Ali. And the fight was just absolutely shameful. Bob Arum to this day does not even want to talk about it. And here's the difference, though. What I find amazing about the caliber of men and fighters and what they had to go through back then. Did you know Ali actually had four other real fights in between all that? And that's, that's amazing. Nowadays, a fighter, this is what I hate about today's fighters. They fight in, like, let's say, February. So that's their one fight. Then they'll fight all the way in October, because that's what they do now. They fight twice a year. And if the fight, that second fight goes more than six rounds, and me and Buddy McGirt laugh about this, we say, we interview the fight. Hey, so a tough fight, ninth round knockout, what's next? The guy in- invariably says, oh, whew, I need a long rest. Long rest? You just took seven months off. I, I, the load management in boxing is ridiculous, and it softens fighters. And this is the point I want to wrap around. And Ganu took this fight much more seriously. And in my view, that alone made him more dangerous than he should have been. Look, do I think a more serious version of Fury wraps that fight up much easier? Yes. But I can only judge you by what you put out there on stage. Like, you don't get an asterisk by this. To me, work ethic actually counts in what you are as an athlete. And Fury, to me, not only did he lose... I, I do think, to a certain degree, boxing lost as a whole in terms of its perception. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone, one thing I certainly agree with you on, no one's going to be calling uh, Tyson Fury the GOAT <laughs> anymore. And, and I, your, your point about this era of heavyweights is just not the same. You know, Ali fought Ken Norton. I mean, the list, George Foreman, the list goes on and on and on. The, 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 the great boxers, the, the great boxers now make $15, $20 million a year rushing the passer in the NFL or playing small forward in the NBA. And so uh, it, it's just not a lot of talent in the boxing game at, at no. that division in particular. They do. And look, it's so difficult to actually judge today's fighters and put them in an all-time status because they don't fight enough, okay? Now, I'm not asking guys to fight every month or every other week like they once did. That's never happening, but it reminds me of a story. So a guy that really was an all-time great, Sugar Ray Leonard, asked the famous matchmaker, Teddy Brenner from Madison Square Garden, he goes, hey, Teddy, you know, like, you know you're boxing. You're close with the great Ray Robinson. How would you compare me to Robinson? And Teddy Brenner, as only he could, just looked at him and said, I don't know, Ray, fight 200 more times than I could tell you. Because if you really want to be able to judge athletes, we need to see you more often. We need to see you against different levels of competition, different styles, and under different circumstances. These careers nowadays are so infrequent in their activity. And also, they are, I don't want to say cherry picking, but they are able to engineer matchups that are so far in favor of them. It almost, I don't want to say it ceases to become an athletic contest, but it falls almost short of being scripted. Now you look at Ali, in my view, he is the greatest heavyweight of all time because going all the way back from his title winning fight in the mid sixties to Sonny Liston to that ill-fated fight against Larry Holmes in 1980 
There has never been a heavyweight that fought as many quality big men and against different styles and had multiple rivalries, which is key. He fought Joe Frazier three times. He had absolute fits against Ken Norton and may have not actually won any of those fights. He had a rematch against Sonny Liston that was shrouded in controversy. But we are talking about a heavyweight that even when he was not the sharpest version of himself, still fought dangerous men like Ernie Shavers and Ron Lyle. I mean, just think about the gauntlet this guy, and it was not great for his health, by the way. It wasn't. But when you talk about, and what I did not like, or what I found disturbing, is that the modern media, in this rush to judgment, started saying that Tyson Fury, because he was tall in his physical dimensions, was merely the greatest. And I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. This guy got knocked down numerous times against smaller fighters like Steve Cunningham, and can we be honest about Deontay Wilder? He is a very exciting, dangerous, but flawed fighter from a technical standpoint. If you look at Deontay Wilder's run as the WBC champion, I believe he made 10 title defenses. I'm not so sure any of those victories came against a top 75 or 100 heavyweight. So think about it. Who has he really beaten across the board consistently where you say, just taking the emotion out of it, and even this past Saturday, what has he really done to be given that status as a top 10 heavyweight, other than the fact he's 6'9"? Babe, uh, thank you so much. Uh, great job, as always. Uh, we'll see you later this week. Uh, guys, uh, we've been talking to you about big tech censorship and telling you about a major step Blaze Media is taking to declare independence from big tech and ensure we can keep bringing you the truth no matter what. Well, if you go to Blaze Media's website, theblaze.com right now, you will see it's been totally overhauled. You'll see news articles, opinion, analysis, lifestyle, and tech commentary. But what you will not see are those obnoxious ads that are on virtually every other website. Here's why this is such a big deal. Most people don't realize that by having those ads on our website, Google was able to send bots to scour for any content they deemed unsafe for advertisers. After finding something they didn't like, they demand we remove ads from that article or else have our entire website demonetized. We dealt with this time and time again, and here's the worst part. After forcing us to remove ads from problematic articles, Google buried those articles so deep in the search results that they became nearly impossible to find. Google was essentially using its ad revenue as a cudgel to either force us to toe the leftist line or bury the unsafe content so no one could find it. That's why we're walking away from ads on our website. The decision to go ad-free will cost us millions, and we did not make it lightly. None of this is possible without you, and we're counting on you to make sure we can continue to bring you the unfiltered truth. We're taking a gamble by investing in more quality content, including expert analysis, insightful commentary, and authentic investigative reporting. Visit theblaze.com, explore the all-new ad-free experience, and see for yourself how we're standing up against suppression and prioritizing independent journalism. Go to theblaze.com right now, become a subscriber. I think to support this Blaze Media deal, it's just $3, a cup of coffee a month. Help us out here. We're standing up for you. It's, it's, it's th this Blaze 
website revamp. You guys know how important writing is to me. And this, because I believe all truth is, is written, and it's, it's, the found, it's why Thomas Jefferson, you guys heard me talk about this last week, about why Thomas Jefferson said he'd rather have newspapers than the government. And again, you've heard me talk about it's why God had the Bible written rather than released on DVD or video or audio. <laughs> the written word is very powerful. We're taking a bet on that. We need you. We're really taking a bet on you guys, that you'll support it. Uh, we're sacrificing some money thinking that You'll replace it with subscriptions, $3 a month. Help us out here, guys. Help me out, because I love the written word. All right, uh, we'll play some tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like Freedom came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want.